Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 409, The First Sparks. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Erna, Theodore, and Michael for signing up already. Earl Robert lay dead at Durham, along with about 700 of his men, at least. The Chronicle actually bumps up the numbers a bit, claiming that Earl Robert had died with 900 of his soldiers at Durham. But either way, that's a lot of dead Normans. But Earl Robert and his bros getting barbecued meant much more than simply a sharp decline in the demand for baguettes. England suddenly had a win, and its posture changed immediately. Rather than bandits in the woods, we're now talking about an army in the field. Rather than isolated local revolts, we're talking about a rebellion. Now, as for why Durham was this turning point, that's anyone's guess. Maybe it was how aggressive the Normans had been with their advancement north. Maybe it was this and other rebellions, like Edric the Wilds, that was finally shifting what the English people saw as possible. Maybe it was something that we're not aware of. Rebellions are funny this way. Each one is unique and impossible to replicate. But whatever it was, the Great Northern Cookout had changed everything. And this army was just getting started. Upon liberating Durham, it appears that the Northern Army realized that the city wasn't just culturally and religiously potent. It was also militarily strategic. Durham was hemmed in by both water and woods, meaning that, organized correctly, the city could be effectively a natural fortress. And the Norman oppressors had taught the Northumbrians one critical thing. Namely, just how effective castles were. So the Northumbrian army built a castle of their own in Durham. And like the Normans, they surrounded the castle with thick ramparts and a moat. Now, a castle isn't the first thing you think of when you think of a rebel movement. And actually, hey, let's fly a flag of rebellion and then get our guys in one easy-to-reach location and wait for the government to come get us is the sort of genius strategy that we've seen a few times in the modern era as well. It's a particular favorite of militias and religious cults, especially militias that turn into religious cults. But what makes this Northumbrian strategy different from the Branch Davidians or those guys who staked out that info booth in a national park is that the Northumbrians, well, they actually had a strategy. There was a bigger plan in play here. As I've been teasing for ages now, the North had been sending emissaries to Denmark. And King Swain Estherson of Denmark had strong links with England. We've seen him in our story from time to time, and some of you may remember that he was actually born in England. But beyond that, King Swain was also a talented commander who had been even able to stand toe-to-toe against King Harald Hadrada of Norway. And so when it came to allies, the Northumbrians could do a lot worse than King Swain. And so, according to William of Jumiege, the plan here was to dig in at Durham and use the city as a base to launch attacks. But the rebellion itself wouldn't just be Durham. Instead, 
that city would form a vanguard, sapping the enemy and gathering recruits for the broader campaign when the relief force arrived from Denmark. And this plan doesn't stop there. The Northumbrians were also gathering more than just the Danes to their cause. Because just down the way were the Scots, and hanging out with them in the court of King Malcolm III of Scotland were the exiled English nobility. And so, shortly after the people of Durham put a savory spin on the baked Alaska, Edgar the Atheling, Earl Gospatric, Marilla Swain, Arnkel, and the four sons of Carly packed their bags and began marching south with their retainers. They were coming to retake England. Now, it's unclear what involvement these nobles had with the events thus far at Durham. And the defeat of the Normans and the torching of the Earl seems to have happened pretty quickly and may well have been a spontaneous act. However, there are records that the exiled English nobles had been sending messengers into the area and trying to recruit rebels to spark a large-scale movement. And actually, at the center of those efforts appears to have been Gospatric himself. And it seems like these efforts must have been working because there was an army in the field by the time that Earl Robert made his ill-considered ride north. And so I suspect that this victory at Durham was a confluence of events, some of which were the result of exiled nobles working to organize a broader fight, and some of which came from the local resistance groups who were on the ground doing the day-to-day fighting and who saw their chance and took it. Which is to say that this probably played out like most major resistance movements. For example, if you live in a city that has recently seen protests, you probably know that some of the biggest and most effective protests are the ones where people simply walked out of their homes and got in the streets. Not because anyone told them to, but because they had enough and it was time to do the right thing. But at the same time, there were individuals and organizations who had spent years working on the very issues that the people were now out on the street about. And many times, they took up a leadership role within what was, at least to begin with, a spontaneous and organic movement. And while our records about what happened in Northumbria are poor, when we take all the evidence that remains to us in total, it does look like something like that was going on here that the exiled nobles had done some groundwork, but ultimately they saw what was developing, realized that this was their chance, and moved south as quickly as they could to capture a leadership position. And as all this was happening, across the channel in Normandy, William and Matilda were holding court and doing courtly things, and I assume enjoying a croque majeure or two. But when word of what was happening in England finally reached Normandy, I can only imagine the mood shift that happened in William's court, not to mention the stress eating. Because let's be honest, this went well beyond getting lost in the channel. And even that minor event led to a whole maritime brunch being broken out to soothe the bastard. So this, at the very least, called for a couple emergency beignets. Meanwhile, back in England, things were reaching a fever pitch. Orderick tells us, quote, Oaths, fealty, and the safety of their hostages were of little weight to men who became infuriated by the loss of their patrimony and the murder of their kinfolk and countrymen, end quote. In other words, William and his companions had pushed the English to the brink and had given them the sense that they had nothing left to lose. And in response, the English had taken the fight directly to the Normans. 
And all of a sudden, we're told by Orderick that Robert Fitzrichard, who William had assigned to govern York, was killed outright by the citizens of the city, along with a large number of his own men. Now, Orderick doesn't tell us how this occurred, and the castle of York still stood at this point, and we also know that the rest of the Normans were locked inside. So did Robert and his men sally forth and try and mount an attack? Did they try and escape? It's hard to say. It does seem like there must have been an effort to get outside of the walls of the castle, because we're told that pleas for aid and a warning that the castle might need to be surrendered were being sent south. So my guess is that Robert and his men were probably caught outside the walls during some half-baked scheme to get support from Winchester or from London. But however it happened, now there were even fewer Normans in York. And those that remained, which included Sheriff William Mallet, his family, and some assorted Norman knights, well, they're staying put in their castle with the gates firmly barred. But down the hill assembled in front of the Mont, were still the people of York. And they looked pissed. You see, it turns out, when you seize people's homes, loot their community, kill their neighbors, and then dam a river to flood an entire neighborhood just for good measure, well, that tends to irk some folks. So the people of Yorkshire wanted to have a word. A few words. But the Normans, well, they'd just rather not if it was all the same. So they stayed locked up in their fortress. But that was fine. The people of Yorkshire had other people to talk to. For example, there were some emissaries from Durham who'd recently arrived. And they had quite the story to share. As well as a new recipe for a Norman flambe. But overall, this conversation that would have been happening between the leadership in Yorkshire and the Durham emissaries would have been tense. Because what the Northumbrian rebels were proposing was really risky. This wasn't a show of force to protest tax increases or an attempt to make enough noise that Winchester would be forced to make concessions. This was a rebellion. What Durham was proposing was no less than a regime change. And that wasn't something that the Normans and their allies would take in stride. They would bring everything that they had to bear down upon these rebels. And that would make it a tough sell for the people of York. But it seems that the rebels of Durham and their supporters had anticipated this because Jumiege tells us that Durham would provide the city with, quote, an abundance of arms and money, end quote. And that's how you do it, Durham. That is how you build a widespread resistance. You don't do what Exeter did and ask folks to risk their lives to come to your aid. No, you go to the people and you offer them help. You give them a reason to care about your movement before you ask them to join. Successful guerrilla campaigns almost always involve outreach work. Now, sometimes they do it for cynical reasons, and sometimes they do it because of a genuine ethical belief system. But regardless of why it happens, if a movement doesn't do it, they're in for one hell of an uphill climb. And so, the people of York were provided with the means to put up a staunch resistance against their Norman oppressors. And a concrete example was made about how their cause was the same cause as the people of Durham. And so, they united with the people of Durham. All while Sheriff Mallet, his wife and kids, and the remaining soldiers stayed tucked in behind the castle walls. But I'm sure as they watched the mood of the city... 
they must have began to feel that something had changed. Orderick describes it like this, quote, Confidence now became restored among the English in resisting the Normans, by whom their friends and allies were grievously oppressed, end quote. The Normans had been able to clamp down on the kingdom in part due to their aura of invincibility and the sheer terror that they kept people living in. The Norman knights and mercenaries had acted in ways that flew in the face of norms and morality, but they had done so without any apparent consequences. So the fear that pervaded those first few years must have been overwhelming, and there must have been a sense that no help was coming and nothing could stop these men. But then a bunch of angry farmers and craftsmen killed an earl. And then another angry group of farmers and craftsmen killed a governor. And suddenly, what had seemed impossible was right there on the table. Maybe they could overthrow these guys. And that sense of possibility would have only grown when Merrill Swain, Earl Gospatrick, Arnkel, and the four sons of Carley arrived in Durham and joined up with other powerful nobles in the region. Because these weren't just some guys. Many of these leaders were older, with significant experience and plenty of political connections. And these were things that the South had largely lacked after losing nearly all of their leadership at the Battle of Hastings. That disaster had meant that the English leadership in the South was largely led by the untested and unprepared sons of dead thanes and earls. Essentially boys who should have been focused on growing their first mustaches. But that wasn't the case in the North. The North still had plenty of the old guard. And some of them were now arriving in Durham. For example, Merrilis Wayne was highly ranked in the five boroughs, serving as the Sheriff of Lincoln during the reign of King Harold. And as for everyone else in that group that came down there, they were all powerful Northern lords with ties to the ancient seat of Bernicia, Bamborough. Uhtred the Bold's territory. In fact, Uhtred was Earl Gospatrick's great uncle. And adding even more dynastic weight, Gospatrick was also a relative of Edward the Confessor. And he was close to the House of Godwin. Actually, it was Gospatrick who saved Tostig's life back when they were attacked while on pilgrimage to Rome. Though that closeness to the House of Godwin probably was tested a few years later when Gospatrick's uncle was murdered on the orders of Edith and Tostig. Because, you know, Tostig. But the fact remains that Gospatrick was very well connected and dynastically powerful. He was also popular enough in the North that he was the person that the Northern Lord selected as their Earl. And as such, he appears to have been in the leadership position of this group. Joining him was Arnkel, who was a powerful and wealthy Yorkshire thane who held an enormous amount of land. And he had married Sigrid, the aunt of Gospatrick, who was also the half-sister of Earl Edred of Bamborough, the ex-wife of Earl Adolf, and a powerful heiress in her own right, whose holdings included estates in the Bishopric of Durham. So Arnkel and his wife were a northern power couple that, like Gospatrick, had deep roots reaching all the way back to the House of Bamborough. But here's where this northern delegation becomes very interesting. The four sons of Carly are also linked to the House of Bamborough, you know, just like most everyone in this group was. And they are also linked through blood. But not blood ties. Oh no, they're linked to Bamborough 
through a blood feud. You might recall from earlier episodes that it was Carly's dad, Thorbrand the Hold, who had murked Uhtred the Bold. And then Uhtred's son, Eldred, murked Thorbrand. And this Eldred, by the way, was the same Eldred who was the brother-in-law to Arnkel's wife. And then Eldred ended up getting killed by Thorbrand's son. And Thorbrand's son was Carly, the father of these four sons. Now, this is all pretty typical Northumbrian stuff, to be honest. But what's also typical for Northumbrians is that these feuds tend to go on and on and on. There's never enough killing, never enough revenge. Everyone is locked into a cycle of murdering the guy who murdered your dad because your dad earlier murdered their dad because his dad got murdered and so on. And so you'd expect, after all of this, for Gospatrick and Arnkel to be looking for a shot at some strike back. And you'd also expect that the sons of Carly would either be in hiding or they'd be plotting some kind of preemptive strike on the house of Bambara. Or probably both. And yet, here they were, all marching together and working towards a common goal. Because that's how you do it, Northumbria. In an actual rebellion, you really don't have to like your comrades, and chances are you're going to hate quite a few of them. But you are working towards something bigger than that, so you have to put those issues aside. And this, more than anything else, gives you a sense of how significant this new phase of resistance was. The Northern movement against William was transcending not just personal conflicts, but deeply rooted generational rifts. And they were forming into a truly broad regional movement. And according to Jumiege, the goal of this went well beyond ousting the Normans. Because they also had someone in mind to replace him. Edgar the Atheling, the scion of the old house of Wessex. And by picking this guy, the North was signaling that they weren't just finding ways to unify among themselves. They also had an eye on attracting the South. Because while there were plenty of Northern candidates, and even some Scandinavian candidates, who would have appealed to a Northumbrian audience, if you want the South on board, you probably need someone from one of the traditional dynasties down there. And Edgar the Atheling was ready and willing. So ready and willing, in fact, that he appears to have marched right along with the northern delegation. And now that they joined up with the rebels in Durham, they continued on to the allied city of York. And back in York, Sheriff Mallet was still waiting for a reply on his urgent request for reinforcements. And they gotta be showing up any minute now. I mean, they got horses. Any minute. Any minute. And then finally, troops were spotted in the distance. A lot of troops. Ugh, Northumbrian troops. F**k. They weren't here to relieve Sheriff Mallet. They were here to join up with the people of York. And something to keep in mind here is that this must have been happening at the same time as the political delegations were reaching out to Denmark, and also as the, quote, various attacks, end quote, were being launched out of Durham to clear the way for the larger force. So what we're talking about is a multi-pronged and multi-tactic rebellion. And chances are, those other various attacks, which are referenced in the record but not detailed, 
were probably smaller scale skirmishes and raids because there is evidence that the northern settlement of the north was well underway. In fact, it was far enough along that writs were being addressed to, quote, the Thanes, French, and English of Yorkshire, end quote. So yeah, there must have been quite a few Norman settlers in the north. And from this, we can assume that the various attacks were aimed at these other Norman settlers who had recently seized English lands, and who, now that the Earl was dead and the Sheriff was functionally imprisoned in his castle, were finding themselves without any protection. And protection is something that you'd want if you were living shoulder to shoulder with the people that you've been openly pushing around, murdering, and stealing from. And actually, when you look at these holdings that the new Norman lords had, you can see something interesting. Because it's easy to spot lands that had once belonged to figures linked to the rebellion, but were suddenly now appearing in Norman hands. For example, Sheriff William Mallet owned quite a bit of land, including an estate that had previously belonged to one of Carly's sons. So could that have been part of what motivated him to join the rebellion? Maybe. Either way, though, it's not making him many friends, and adding to the animosity, Mallet appears to have been particularly unscrupulous in how he acquired English lands. For example, the Doomsday Book, as well as other legal documents from the era, implied that Mallet held some of his lands illegally. I mean, even the Norman documents of the time imply that he didn't have a writ or anything for some of these lands, which meant he must have just taken them. In fact, the Chronicle of the Church of York claims that Mallet seized goods and possibly land from the church as well. And while Mallet wasn't the only Norman holding Northumbrian lands, I suspect that he was one of the most well-known of the occupiers due to his position. As you recall, in 1068, King William had instituted a brutal tax upon Northumbria. And this tax bill was so high that the Archbishop of York actually took it upon himself to tell William that he needed to chill out, which, of course, he didn't. But the tax was so severe that Gospatric, who was the Earl at the time, just flatly refused to implement it, which was part of what led the king to march on York, build some castles, garrison them with some knights, and install William Mallet as sheriff. And once the king installed Mallet, what do you think the chances are that he commanded his new sheriff to do his job and collect those taxes? Pretty good, right? And that could explain why Mallet was awash in riches, and why we have local records speaking about how he seized property without any proper writ or right. All in all, I think we have a pretty good idea for why the people of York were so incredibly livid with this guy. And I'm guessing that Mallet realized exactly how dire his situation was. I mean, was surrender even an option now? They'd really push these folks to the edge. So how would things go if he opened the gates? And then it got even worse when Gospatric, Edgar, and their allies, as well as a bunch of their soldiers arrived and joined up with the York Rebellion. Because soon thereafter, the army of York launched an assault upon York Castle and tried to break through their defenses. Unfortunately, though, as we talked about in episode 406, Rook Takes Pawn, modern Bailey castles were just diabolically difficult to defeat. The things were essentially meat grinders, and your safest course would be to starve the defenders out. The trouble with that strategy, though, is that it takes time, and time 
wasn't on their side. Eventually, word of what had happened in Durham and York would reach William, if it hadn't already. And eventually, he would bring one of his goddamn horse armies into the north. So the newly combined army prepared their weapons and, according to Orderic, made desperate attacks upon the castle. But the defenses of the castle held, at least for now. But, given enough time, they could overcome them. And when they did, they would finally get their hands on Mallet. And more importantly, they'd get their hands on that castle. Though again, that was just a short-term goal for Yorkshire. And this rebellion had much more far-reaching plans than simply getting their hands on an avaricious sheriff. Because the people of York wanted to get involved in politics. So a council was formed. And at the assembly, York declared that they would no longer be subject to that Norman usurper in the south. Like the people of Durham, York would instead be subject to the House of Wessex. They would be governed by King Edgar the Atheling. The king in the north! However, the king in the south had just returned to England. And he was now leading an army, charging straight for York. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to join a community that isn't descending into just crazy toxicity, join the community on Reddit. Against all odds, it's lovely there. And you can find links to it by going to the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.